the audience can't do anything about what Iago is going to do next. And I think he gets a lot of pleasure out of that. The fact that he is just going to do something evil, and he's like, watch me, because I know it's going to work. I'm Victoria Perot. And I'm Amanda Whiteley. And this is Coaching Shakespeare. Okay, listeners, thanks for tuning in. So before we get started on our episode today, I want to encourage everyone to just take a moment and think about a time that they were whispered to. And you can imagine what the context was for that whisper. It was backstage or it was at a party and there was music blasting. It was just meant to be for you. Just take a moment to experience that. Okay, thank you for indulging me. So I did that because A, it's really fun, and also it's very relevant to what we'll be exploring today. This is one that I have become fond of over the years, and I've done it since I was very small uh, because I think it's one of the first, some version of the whispering exercise is one of the first things that actors are taught because it's often related to scales. In musical theater, um, whenever we would do songs or uh, like little monologues, little speeches and things, they'd have us yell it really, really big to the whole room. And then they'd have us do it really, really small. Because it's, it's something that's really easy to grasp as, as a kid. Like we, we can follow the instruction, now be really quiet, and now be really loud. So I have been kind of doing some version of this whispering exercise since I was a little kid. And I've used it as a director as well. Have you used any versions of the the whispering exercise? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was always instructed as a singer when I was going off voice to never whisper. Mm. It's rare that I'll ask actors to whisper. Now, I have used the term sotto voce many times. Why are you talking like this? That's different. So I had kind of a thing where I, in voice class, I do not use whispering. So I'm very open and very excited to hear about this. So take it away. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, there's an interesting topic about just whispering and vocal health as well, because I feel like oftentimes stage whispers can be very damaging for your voice because it's releasing so much air. It's like the rubbing together of vocal cords. Um, but it's, it's one that I, when I've done it, and I think it, it should be one that's done done sparingly. You don't want to continually rehearse and rehearse and rehearse in a whisper just for your own vocal health. But um, it's one that I've used as a director especially because I'm a really physical actor and director. Uh, so I probably like 80% of the time would prefer to be just up on my feet and getting out of my own comfort zone and getting my actors out of their own comfort zone. I was rehearsing <laughs> right before I came here. I was just like looping around this one part of Central Park to learn lines because that's really helpful for me. But this does the the exact opposite of that. It's kind of the the antidote for um, for the very active actor because it forces you to be still and really small and sit with something. And it still lets you go over the entire text in the same way that a speed through was, but it takes off all that pressure of blocking performance, any of the, the capital A acting that can often get an actor's way. So the whispering exercise that we are going to be doing on this episode 
is called, I nicknamed it Coddle the Bottle, uh, because essentially what it is, is you would take a water bottle or a small object, anything of your choosing, animal, pillow, whatever, and you take it and you deliver the entire monologue right to that object. And you can look at the object, you can hold the object, but it's essentially you're whispering to tell the story of your monologue to the object. It's beautifully simple. I know we've got a guest coming on today who's going to be working with an Iago monologue, which is great and perfect for whispering. Perfect for this. But you you tried it out on, you know, a monologue you were playing around with. So go ahead and just do a little bit of it so we can hear it whispered. Yeah. Um, So I'm actually working on a monologue today. So I can just put it into the microphone. So I'll, I'll coddle the microphone as well. Love is mirror. When I hear you do that, I immediately start thinking about this um, ASMR mm-hmm. stuff that's all over the internet. And I want to talk about that because when you do the whispering exercise, Amanda, is it about what it does to you, what it does to the listener? So that's what I want to talk about. And obviously, many of the listeners are going to know what ASMR is even more than I did. Okay, so so it was a new idea. And I have spent the last week watching countless videos, reading about it. It is autonomous sensory meridian response, right? That's what mm-hmm. it stands for. Um, I learned that this woman, I, I can't remember, it was in 2017 that she coined this phrase. And part of it, the idea of meridian was to get away from the uh, word orgasm, that mm. the many followers and practitioners felt that the idea of it being sexual, it it wasn't the right way to characterize what the sensuous and sensory experience is Mm. of relaxation, of the tingles on the back of the neck and spine, of, of comfort, of pleasure, of a kind of a frisson that people were feeling from Mm. listening to these speakers and watching them do a variety of things. So, as soon as you started to do that monologue, it immediately brought me there. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk about that because what is the experience for you of whispering text? I think it depends on the text that you're whispering because it depends on the initial context of the monologue of the speech because there are some things that you will be doing, some scenes that are, are close to a whisper anyway, and if you're to continue that into a just even smaller whisper, it feels like a continuation. But if something is like an, a really explosive piece and you dial it all the way down to something that's so, so small and so, so intimate, different meanings start popping up. And um, it's like it's a little bit self-soothing as well. There's a weird thing where it's um, it becomes less performative and it 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 either becomes a whisper to like your scene partner, this water bottle to yourself. Um, so I feel, I definitely feel if not the brain tingles that, that, uh, autonomous sensory meridian response, if not that when I'm doing it, I, I feel my body kind of relax a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that, Amanda. It also makes me think of something else, which is when you have pretty good possession of your ability to really play text fully, whether it's with volume and, and all kinds of verbal gymnastics that, that might be at your disposal, that you have really good range and you've been mm. trained to really play the language. Once you go to the whispering exercise, th those gymnastics are out the window. So mm. watching you do the whispering exercise, it, it immediately limits everything down. Because mm -hmm. you just can't rely on, you know, I'm going to lift this phrase, I'm going to banner this, and I'm going to shape this, and then, and then I'm going to, you know, drop this. And You can't do any of that. You don't have a body. You don't have projection. It becomes so much more about clarity than it becomes about showing emotion. Because I think the main goal of whispering is to be heard, to be understood, <laughs> to get your point across, you know? That's great. That's great that the main goal of whispering is to be heard. Is to be heard. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely true. That is the goal. So let's, uh, let's bring on our guest. Let's bring her on. Welcome, Emma Magnus. Emma and I met, I think, is it like two and a half years ago now? Oh my um, God, probably. Yeah, and you um, were in school at the new school, and you're still in school at the new school. Um, do you want to talk to me a little bit about that? A little bit about your work as an actor and just what you're up to right now? Yeah, right now, I mean, I, I start recording my thesis next week, and um, my play is based off of Medea. It's an absurd retelling of Medea, and it's about love and the extent that people do crazy things for love and uh the main character Mimi goes to the bottom of a well because her mute ho husband told her to each section is split up into a different genre so the first is like love then it's a life play and then it's um a tragedy and a horror and all of these things that's where I've been putting a lot of my effort right now. I'm just, I just can't wait to graduate. <laughs> so in terms of um, Medea and your translation uh, of it to a short film, what have you been finding? Yeah, so Medea is a very strong character. And I wanted to take an approach where Medea had a little more insecurity and because, I mean, that's, that, that is really what she is feeling. She just acts on it so much in, in the script. And she's insecure about her relationship. Jason, who's her husband, he's a mute. So she has like these, this weird insecurity that she thinks that he's just holding out on her. That he actually can speak. And he just doesn't want to speak around her. And she talks about that insecurity a lot. And at the end, he ends up like shouting down to her and speaking and that's what makes her decide to kill herself because she's like I I like that's the ultimate betrayal it's just been like a weird kind of tug of trying to not mirror Medea but instead like attack weird things that kind of connect to my life or like really opening insecurities that I've had that I feel like are insane like that's an insane thing to think but like where is that world where the mute husband is actually lying about being mute. I just love that. Congratulations on 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 the idea. <laughs> now you on just the have idea. to do this thing. Now you have to do it. But no, that's so exciting. Emma, tell us um, tell us what you're going to be doing for us today. What monologue, and then just set us up a little bit on what's going on with this character right before this character speaks. Okay, so this is Iago from Othello. 
And Iago is a very confident character. He thinks that he deserves a lot. He wants to um, increase his rank in the military and in royal status in the kingdom where Othello is ruling right now. So his plan is to kind of entrap Othello into this elaborate and manipulative, beautiful scheme to kind of bring him to his downfall. So what, what scene, act, all that, where, where are we? Act two, scene three. It's the, and what's he then that says I play the villain monologue? And Cassio has just left. Cassio is his like little, his little minion. <laughs> oh no, and Rodrigo too. He just kind of, he's, everyone is his pawn. So he's right now setting up his web. And this is the, this is the time that he speaks to the audience. And he's like, I've got a little secret. We were, Victoria and I were talking about the Patrick Page uh, interview on State of Shakespeare and how Iago has many sociopathic tendencies. And I think it's so great to get like the difference between an Iago soliloquy and a Macbeth soliloquy to the audience. In the ways that uh, Macbeth so often, it's a confession of his conscience. Um, Iago, it's, it's a confession of his lack of conscience and an invitation in into this world. So I love this piece. I'm very excited to hear it. So I think I'll just do a, do a read-through of it. Yeah, so the audience can get it in their ears. Okay, cool. And what's he then that says I play the villain? When this advice is free, I give an honest, probable to thinking, and indeed the course, to win the more again? For tis most easy, the inclining Desdemona to subdue in any honest suit. She's framed as fruitful as the free elements. And then for her to win the more, were to, to renounce his baptism, all seals and symbols of redeemed sin. His soul is so infettered to her love that she may make, unmake, do what she list, even as her appetite shall play the god with his weak function. How am I then a villain to counsel Cassio to this parallel course directly to his good? divinity of hell. When devils will the blackest sins put on, they do suggest at first with heavenly shows, as I do now. For whiles this honest fool plies Desdemona to repair his fortunes, and she for him pleads strongly to the moor, I'll pour this pestilence into his ear, that she repeals him for her body's lust, and by how much she strives to do him good, she shall undo her credit with the more. So will I turn her virtue into pitch, and out of her own goodness make the net that shall enmesh them all. Lovely. Very lovely natural reading of it. Simple and clear. So much clarity. Thank you for that. Iago is one of my favorites. <laughs> I just would love to play Iago one day. Everything he does is just like, wink, nod to the audience, like, look what I'm doing. <laughs> He's the puppet master, for sure. It's interesting what you were saying about um, the wink to the audience. Why does he have to tell the audience everything he's going to do? He is very proud of himself. He knows that he, he's an observer. The way he describes Desdemona and her relationship with Othello is so astute. He's like, I know exactly how to win, and I need someone else to know. Because, because 
when your mind goes to an insane place, it's not enough to just keep it to yourself. It's like, oh no, it's not just my little secret. It's like, I'm gonna let someone who has no control over the situation in on this. Like the audience can't do anything about what Iago is gonna do next. And I think he gets a lot of pleasure out of that. The fact that he is just going to do something evil and the audience can't do anything. And he's like, watch me, watch me, because I know it's going to work. It's so cool, because the audience becomes the safe scene partner, because they're, they're the only one who, who can't stop the action of a play. That's, I've never thought of a, a soliloquy like that before. It's the best place for a confessional. It's the great place to display power. I, I see in this monologue this impulse to, to voice his identity to someone, and someone who ideally can't take that identity away from him. Yeah, and the, I mean, Rodrigo is very complicit, mm-hmm. and so is the audience. He likes to have people that he knows has no agency in his life, and that's partially why he does not like Othello, because here is this, you know, at, at, at this time, a person of color rising to power, which wasn't something that Iago even thought was going to be a threat, and now it is. And he has to tread lightly. But I just think he's like a master manipulator and a genius, really. I mean, coming from, from the audience's perspective, he is very evil. I mean, this is this is definitely sociopathic behavior. This is like using love against someone. That's the ultimate evil. Why is um, using love the worst thing you can do? Love is Love is all about trust and... He just disassembles it all very meticulously. And subtly, he plants a horrifying seed of betrayal. I think what's so heartbreaking to me about, about this is that to, to love is, is to open yourself up as, as much as you possibly can, to, to exhibit all vulnerability, to surrender and to take down that guard. So then to attack someone when all of their armor is off is, it's like a, it's a cowardly thing. That's why I think it's like bottom, bottom of the barrel in terms of just cruel things you can do to another person. Now talking about this too, I think this is an amazing exercise to do for the whispering exercise. Um, this is an exercise called Coddle the Bottle. And for our listeners, Emma's already got her, her stuffed animal um, up and ready for action. Does that ugly doll have a name, by the way? His name is Ghosty. They come with names. I have some that have better names. Like this is a pretty lackluster name. He's a little he's a little ghost. I'm obsessed with them. I think that they're the most amazing toy that has existed on the planet. Well, Ghosty is just going to he's about to enter a whole new world of theatrical expression, um, unlike anything he's seen before. So I'm going to ask you, Emma, to take to take your ghosty and also take this monologue that you just shared with us. And you're going to hold up Ghosty, and you can hold up Ghosty really close to your face. And you're going to share this entire monologue to Ghosty. You can touch, stroke Ghosty, hold Ghosty, however you want. But this is a monologue that's only to him and Ghosty alone. Nothing is spoken above a whisper. And you can just start whenever you're ready, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, we're just going to take it to Divinity of Hell. Great. And what's he then that says I play the villain? When this advice is free, I give to thinking, and indeed the cores, to win the more again. 
For tis most easy, the inclining testimony to subdue in any honest suit. She's framed as fruitful as the free elements. And then for her to win the more, or to renounce his baptism, all seals and symbols of redeemed sin. His soul is so unfettered to her love that she may make, unmake, do what she list, even as her appetite shall play the god in his weak function. How am I then a villain? To counsel Cassio to this parallel course directly to his good. Divinity of hell. Tell us about what you're finding with Ghosty. It was like I was holding a baby, and I felt like the baby had no idea about how horrible the world is. Mm. And I had to explain the alliterations, great, so framed as fruitful as the free elements, stuff like that, make, unmake, do what she lists, stuff like that that's very like, la-di-da, it's like a lullaby, very rhythmic, something that you would say to a baby, and those are, those are the things that keep a child interested. But then when it gets to, how am I then a villain? That felt very reflective. So the villain holds a lot of power. In the beginning, it's like, oh, what's he then? That's how I play a villain. I know that I'm doing something good for someone. And then I think the second villain is reflective. It's like, how am I then a villain? And the, the, that word think like s- settles. And then he realizes that he's just a manipulative person and it all is summed up in divinity of hell i mean that that is the line of this monologue just divine evil (laughs) and ghosty does not know what's going on and it's the same thing as the audience ghosty has no agency it's endearing almost it felt like this was a very endearing read i felt very not proud like as iago a step below proud and thoughtful. I was able to like see my plan in Ghosty's eyes. Of everything that you so beautifully described, Emma, was any of that new for you from what you'd experienced before? Because you've had so much time with this monologue in your life. It was interesting to play with it whispered because I think that's actually how it should be. And it's hard to do that. But like, it's like, hey, I've got a secret. And, and it's a very tender secret. You have to be very careful with the secret. I'm giving you a little gift, and you can't let anyone know that I'm giving you this gift. And it was very tender and sweet, which is, I, I usually give this monologue a very blasé attitude. He's very like, what? And what about it? What are you going to do? There's, there's literally nothing you can do about it. So, But if it's like, I want you to join me on this journey. Come with me, ghosty. Let's 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 fall down a rabbit hole together and see how messy this gets. That's so much more enticing rather than just the blase attitude of excusing yourself, going, "No, I'm bringing you with me. Me giving you this information means you're now on my side." <laughs> right. You have no choice but to be in on the evil that is about to ensue. You're an accomplice now, Ghosty. <laughs> Literally. Does that make Iago feel less alone? 
I think that's probably it. And I think that's honestly why he has this monologue to the audience, because having such intelligence, I think he finds is very lonely. And so the only thing he can do is move up in the world. And he, he can't really express this to anyone. He can't express the, the crazy little switchboard in his brain. And now that he has this audience, he can totally take advantage of that and, and just welcome people into this. He's like, this is my mind. My, this play is my mind. Enjoy it. Like, f- see, see how much I deserve what I'm about to get because I know I'm going to get it. I think he's really proud of himself and he wants someone to recognize it. His plan is genius. And horrible, but genius. He knows exactly how to not make the blame his own. The second time you said, um, how am I then a villain? I almost got this sense of, I'm not a bad mom, am I? (laughs) I did. I actually, I think I remember feeling that. How am I then a villain? Like, oh, am I a a villain? Am I a bad mom? (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's something... There's something so cool about, if not remorse, because I don't, I don't think that you were experiencing remorse, but, but there was something really cool in that now that you had a scene partner, rather than just a mass, now that this was one person, even if you, Iago, are not experiencing remorse, you are watching more closely how Ghosty's taking it. And, and like making the choice to make Ghosty a little baby baptism stuck out to me. And it didn't, it didn't stick out to me during the other reading. Um, but this idea of, I, I was thinking of the Godfather, weirdly. Um, like, <laughs> I, maybe it's just because of baptism and that scene from the Godfather. But, like, like, I'm bringing you into this really cruel world and there's nothing you can do about it. It was very harrowing. <laughs> Literally. And I think that there is an acceptance. It's like, I understand how people could see me as a villain. Mm-hmm. From how am I then a villain to divinity of hell? That that is what it this is. This is this is the behavior of devils. And I think by the end he owns that. And I think he just accepts it as a consequence of intellect and bringing something very innocent in, into such a labyrinth of gear turning madness. It hurts in a different way. An act being done just in isolation, it just completely changes when you have the eye of an innocent person on it. Just having that energy of the room makes the act completely different. Yeah, it's a very different kind of heartbreaking because I think as as we get older, we you know realize how kind of messed up the world is and that there are horrible things that happen and we just kind of have to exist knowing that that happens but children don't register that they're built to not receive that correctly literally like they just they it will convert into something else it becomes embedded in their makeup um when when something traumatic happens to a child you know it 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 changes them as a person i'm immediately thinking about uh some of my students during the pandemic and how this year is one sixteenth of their lives, and for me, it's one fifty-sixth of my life. And there was a really interesting article in the Times how older people are doing better because we've weathered so much stuff that it gets to what you're talking about, which is the ability for it to go boom, 
it hits, it goes off, it hits, it goes off. Whereas for them, it goes in, it defines, it remakes, it, re, you know, mm. and it's, it's a completely different experience for someone so young. But it, it was so interesting listening because the words that were absolutely essential are the ones we would hear really well. And the ones that kind of linked them would go to a different place. So you could almost chain together the words that were uh, more voiced. We also got this kind of softer sound from the S's and the F's and all that that was really beautiful. When you whisper, Emma, you need so much breath. The ability for a human being to whisper consistently, it's just impossible. You can't. And what, what was that experience for you having that amount of breath running through you? I never felt like I was out of breath, but it's definitely weird to have consistent, like non-vocalized anything. It feels <laughs> very wrong. Mm -hmm. Like it feels very naughty. And I found myself kind of being like, well, why am I whispering? What do I not want anyone to hear? But but then it, it kind of came to this place where I was like, I, I only want Ghosty to hear this. And it sort of made everything a lot more gentle. I think also the idea that he's whispering, it just uh, cancels out ever at that blasé. Because there's almost this feeling of, um, oh, I have to do this, don't I? You can't be blasé and whisper. It's just, it's impossible. Because it, it whispering is so intentional. To like pick one person to listen to that you have to express something to is just so intentional. And it could imply also a level of shame, a level of privacy um, that you have to exclude everyone else in the room except for the person that you're whispering to. What color did you find that you're going to keep? I think thoughtful is definitely the word that I'm going to take away the most from this because he's obviously thought about this a lot before. And I think being a little more careful about what he's going to share with the audience, what he's going to share with Ghosty. It's like, I'm going to tell you this, but my word choice is going to be very important. Mm. Because until more than halfway through the monologue, I'm going to get you on my side. You're going to believe that I'm doing something good. And see, I just did exactly the thing that I'm about to do to everyone else in this play, to you. Like, it's very, very particular. And I think before I definitely wasn't giving it that complexity keeps us on the edge of our seat yeah that's really cool all right we got we gotta close it out here on that rather brilliant <laughs> note that was so much fun emma i loved this discussion went down so many turns i didn't expect it to emma thank you so much it's just been fantastic good luck with medea oh, thank you this was great have such a great day bye Amanda, I love this exercise. It's easy and incredibly powerful, right? You're, you're waiting at an audition. You pop into the bathroom. You do the whispering exercise. You, you come home from work. You're exhausted. You feel guilty. You know you got to put some time in. In five minutes in your kitchen pantry, <laughs> right before you go to bed, you make these amazing inroads on character. It's yeah. incredibly helpful. So something that we were talking about with the whispering exercise that is a big takeaway is what the Shakespeare voice is, what I'll call the Shakespeare voice, and what it does to the actors, the effects that it has on the actor. And I think every actor um, 
ideally we try to train away from this, but has a bit of a front of when they switch into acting voice or when they switch into Shakespeare voice that they kind of wear in place of their actual speaking voice. And we were talking about like, why, why would they actually do that? Why do actors do that? Because we all find ourselves falling into that trap. And I think one of them is the want to be a really good Shakespeare actor. We're, we're trying to act the way we think Shakespeare should sound. And I think on the flip side of that, what would it mean if, if we were just speaking as ourselves is we run into the fear of what would it be like if we actually meant all of the words that Shakespeare wrote? Like, what if that actually, if we lived life in that octave, it would be an intensely vulnerable existence. So of course we put a front up. Of course we don't want to be taken that seriously because that's always the thing that's the ironic thing with the shakespeare voice you start speaking in the shakespeare voice and then people don't take you seriously because you're, you're not speaking like a a human being you're speaking like a removed trained actor who thinks that they should sound a certain way so i think this is like a gentle antidote for that it's making you just say the words to whoever's in front of you as if they're coming from you in not any trained way, and not any performative way, in just the smallest way that you can express it. It's it's taken so much of the pressure off for me this exercise when I do it, uh, and it's just it's good to it's good to have to hold to know that that's in your back pocket, and that it as you were saying can be turned on whenever you want it to be. Thank you so much for listening to Coaching Shakespeare. I'm Marissa, the podcast producer and editor. Shout out to the amazing team who helped Victoria, Amanda, and me bring this podcast to life. Jeremy Schinder, our intern, Rachel Miller and Nora Slonim, our graphic artists, and Nina Oso, our music composer. If you like the episode, we would love for you to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're streaming. And better yet, tell your friends, classmates, teachers, or colleagues to check out the show. It goes a long way in helping us reach any future listeners. If you really like the episode, you can also subscribe to us on Patreon and get some great perks in exchange for a monthly donation. We also want you to reach out with any of your questions, corrections, or suggestions for the show. To provide that feedback or to inquire about masterclasses or online coaching sessions, visit coachingshakespeare.com and fill out our contact form. In the meantime, we'll exit pursued by a bear.